good to be with you. Um, a couple weeks ago, my family and I, we traveled to 15 hours, mind you, in a car with two children, to a tiny little town in New Mexico. Um, that is, it's tiny. And my husband is the youngest of seven, and his entire family lives here. So we do this um, travel every year um, to visit and to be with family. And every year I go there, I learn something new about the town. And this time, I learned and was struck by the identity of the town. See, the town is built for the oil fields. There are so many oil fields, and this town is built to sustain those. The middle of Main Street, at the very end of it, is the oil refinery. And when you walk out outside, you're instantly reminded what's fueling the economy. Do you see that? <laughs> I thought some of you would get that. Because of the smell. I mean, you can smell it all over, anywhere you walk out. A lot of my husband's family is associated with the oil, and so it just comes up in conversations. And um, At the end of the trip, I always like to go by myself, mind you, right? There's a lot of people, and then I go by myself to these couple of stores that just have eclectic things that I like to buy and support um, that those shops. Um, and when I went this time, I was like shocked that they had closed down. Um, and what had happened was they were replaced by the store that sold Carhartts and steel boots and scrubs for the nurses and the doctors that took care of the oil workers. And I um, mourned a little bit because I liked to buy the boots there. And I also was struck that anything that didn't sustain the wells of the town um, didn't make it through COVID. And I was just like, this town is truly the oil field town. And I also was struck by their hard work is allowing um, for me to drive a car, to have things delivered to my door, to pick up food at the grocery store. And I just, I saw this interconnectedness that I hadn't seen before. And today I, I'm going to talk about identity, um, identity of who we are and we all find identity in something, right? Either it's something we do, um, who we're associated with, maybe it's where we work. The diff, dex, diff, dex, wow, dictionary definition, try saying that, um, of identity is the fact of being who or what a person is. So we might identify ourselves as a parent or as a sibling or as a child, maybe a positions of workplace or maybe what our family name is known for. But this morning, I want to focus on how our identity is found with abiding with God. And we're going to see how Ezra models this um, and how it changes everything. There's a book in the Old Testament called Ezra. It's chin, 10 chapters long. Ezra comes in at the 7th chapter. It's taken place in the 5th and 6th centuries called the Persian period. It's a time where the Jewish people were exiled. They weren't gathered together. There wasn't a temple, um, and they were scattered. The temple was their place of identity, their place of worship, where they worshiped Yahweh, the one true God. And when they didn't have that, their identity as a nation was at stake. 
be like taking the oil refinery out of this town. There would just be oil and no gas. And really, I don't think that there would be a town. There wouldn't be a community. Without the temple, there wouldn't be a community. So during the time leading up to chapter 7 in the life of Ezra, God's moving in the kings of Persia to help the Jewish people return to the country and to rebuild their temple. There's a series of favor and reestablishing um, this community. When the foundation is laid, there's, of course, opposition. Because anytime we move in God's favor and his ways, there's opposition and there's going to be. So the building stops. A new leader is raised, and he goes into his identity and his call. And they start rebuilding again. So it's when this temple is rebuilt that Ezra comes into the picture. The king then of Persia grants Ezra unbelievable amount of favor. He gives him abundance from the royal treasury. I can't imagine being in that position. Hey, here's gold and silver, food provisions, animals. And hey, by the way, you're exempt from all taxes. Hey. He ends up leading 1,800 men. That's not including um, women and children of exiled Jewish people back into Jerusalem. So it's in chapter 9 when he gets there where we see what Ezra is really known for, what he's famous for. And what he's famous for is his concern for the Jewish identity. He's made aware of this alarming fact that was happening within the community. Some leaders come up to Ezra and they make him aware that the people were not keeping themselves separate for the na- from the neighboring people. And this is what struck me. The leaders and the priests were leading in this way. They were taking um, the Canaanites, the Hittites, anyone that wasn't of the Jewish people as wives. They were mingling that holy race with the people around them. And the problem was that the law had prohibited from this. It was a warning to not do this. See, God isn't against other people, but he knew that taking other people in that worshiped more gods than just Yahweh was a threat to their identity. I find this happening, you know, like my parents would always tell me, it's really important to choose your friends really wisely, like in high school and middle school, because those people influence the way we're going to go. It's the same here. See, if the Jews were going to worship other gods, that first commandment of you shall serve no other gods before me was going to be in violation. If they were going to serve other gods, their very identity was at stake. Because they were known for serving Yahweh, the one true God, the beginning and the end, Alpha Omega, the I Am. Ezra was concerned about the identity of the people and all the other people watching them. How were they going to be set apart? They had been scattered for 70 years. And we can see that. I mean, standing of it outside now, you know, many years later, I can see um, they weren't gathering together. They were kind of losing their way. They were taking on other people's identity and ways of life. I think it's kind of relevant for us today. At least I really resonated with this part in this last year, um, last May. I had um, my third child, Eden, and um, we 
um, didn't celebrate her as we did my other two children, right? Like, there wasn't a whole bunch of people coming around and celebrating her life and holding her and kissing her and welcoming her into the community. And this struck me particularly this weekend um, when I celebrated um, with my two kids, two babies that recently came into my community. I think there's going to be a picture that comes on the slide here. Um, my kids were celebrating this life of these two little babies. It was just so precious, so dear. I know because I've talked to you guys um, that we've lost our way and there's some scatteredness and splitting between our own families, within our schools, within our friends, and also with the larger church itself. The question I think a lot of us are asking and praying about is, what are we going to do? Looking to the future of Christianity for the next generation, how are we going to help them know who they are? And I think what God's been calling to me is, is not rocket science. It's not a new program, and it's not even working harder. It's not protesting, and it's not fighting, and it's not bickering. What he's calling us to do is what Ezra modeled. When he learned about what's happened, this is what he did. When I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt and I pulled the hair from my head and my beard and I sat down utterly shocked. I was thinking about that and like for me to pull my hair and like these little hairs that I have here, that would hurt <laughs> really bad. And you would really have to pull hard. It says then, all who trembled at the words of God of Israel came and sat with him because of the, com the sin committed by the return exiles. He sat there utterly appalled until the evening sacrifice. See, the pattern of Ezra is profound, and it's so countercultural to us today. But I think it's absolutely necessary that we learn from him. It has been in my life. It says that Ezra simply sat, sat there. He was shocked. He was in anguish. He was sitting with God, processing what was happening before his eyes, how God had rescued them, how he gave them amazing provision to get there. He was concerned for the people and their future. What he saw was that their identity was at stake. He simply sat with God and became real with God. I was reading this, and again, I was like, oh my gosh, this is for me. Like, how much in this last season have we come and sat and said, I see this realization about this truth. We're shocked. I want to fix it. I want to call it out. I want to blame people. I want to point fingers. I want to gossip people. I want to rally people around and align with my truth. In the process, what's happening is that we're completely degrading and dehumanizing people. Ezra could have done all of these things. I think Ezra even had a right to do it. But he didn't. And I think it came from sitting with God that he didn't do that. See, because he paused and he abided with God, something more powerful happened. He 
be heard from God. He doesn't solve any problems. He doesn't condemn anyone. He doesn't point anyone out. He doesn't slander or gossip, and he doesn't even tell the people what to do. Instead, after he sat there all day, he stands up, and he gives one of the greatest intercessory prayers in our entire history. And it's so profound, I wanted to read it to you. Oh my God, I'm utterly ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you, for our sins are piled higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been seeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We've been killed and captured and robbed and disgraced, just as we are today. But now we've been given a brief moment of grace. For the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to survive as a remnant. He's given us security in this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted us some relief from our slavery. For we were slaves, but in his unfailing love, our God did not abandon us in slavery. Instead, he caused the kings of Persia to treat us favorably. He revived us so we could rebuild the temple of our God and repair its ruins. He's given us protection wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh God, what can we say after all this? For once again, we've abandoned your commands. Your servant, the prophets, warned us when they said, the land you're entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, the land is filled with corruption. Don't let your daughters marry their sons. Don't take their daughters as your wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and prosperity of those nations. If you follow these instructions, you will be strong, you will enjoy the good things the land produces, and you will leave this prosperity to your children forever. Now we're being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt. But we've actually been punished far less than we deserve. For you, O oh God, have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. But even so, we are again breaking your commands and intermarrying with the people who do detestable things. Won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives? O oh Lord, God of Israel, you are just. We come before you in our guilt as nothing but an escape remnant. Through such a condition, none of us can stand in your presence. You see, from his abiding, Ezra led one of the most powerful prayers that caused the identity of God's people to shift. The people's eyes were opened. Their hearts became soft. The people repented and moved towards God. You see, out of Ezra's abiding, his prayer brought spiritual revival and reformation of the people. It saved it. I feel the same way as Ezra right now, and I know many of you do as well. We're concerned about the identity as followers of Jesus today. We're standing like Ezra, appalled and in shock of what's happening with our community. How are we going to stand out as a community of people who follow God? What boundaries are we going to stand on? What are our families going to look like? What's our community going to look like? How are we going to be set apart? Whose perspective are we picking up? What perspective are we picking up on? When the world looks at God's people, how are they going to identify us? How are we going to avoid religious and cultural assimilation? See, when Ezra was done praying, this is, this is the most amazing thing to me. He didn't do anything. 
He didn't tell the people what to do. In fact, out of Ezra's prayer, the people start telling each other what to do. God is amazing. All Ezra did was sit with God, petition to God, and the people responded. Ezra was working at rebuilding, reestablishing the community of God because they'd been scattered and lost their way. Today, we are here fighting against our scattered minds, our scattered loyalties, and our divided attention. What if all we need to do is what Ezra modeled? Confess, repent, sit with the serious of our circumstances, take responsibility, offer our petitions to God. And it's out of that own abiding with God that our mindsets, our opinions, our perspectives are going to change. See, the, the Jews had the temple. Now that Jesus has come, Scripture says, we are the temple. Look here in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. The new temple is the Holy Spirit within us, prompting us to believe in God's perspectives, giving us that as a gift. In that, Romans 8 says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that are please the Spirit. So, let your sinful nature con- so letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your minds leads to life and peace. Romans 12 says, Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into the new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, since the Holy Spirit is in us, we can have God's perspective. We get to do that. We get to have a new mindset. We get a new perspective when we allow God to change our minds. When we do this, everything changes. We start not living out of our own opinions or the opinions of other people or what we hear who may not be listening to the Holy Spirit. See, Paul states in Ephesians 4 to throw off your old sinful nature and to let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Our true identity is revealed in this rebuilding of our minds, our temples, ourselves, with God's perspectives. We are made to be whole and free and fearless. And when we allow God to change that, we become whole, free, and fearless. When we abide with God, everything changes. When we abide, our thoughts and actions and motives are from God. When we abide, we stop fearing man just as Ezra did and start fearing God. When we abide, we stop living for ourselves and start living for God and others. When we abide, we stop going to church and we start becoming the church. When we abide, we stop thinking we need deliverance and healing and we become healed and freed. When we abide, we stop thinking about ourselves and see others the way Jesus sees them and we love others the way Jesus loves them. When we abide, our entire perspective changes. Our decision-making, our parenting, our thoughts, our actions. We become people filled with the Holy Spirit. 
We sing songs and hymns unto God. We give thanks to God for everything. We're faithful to our callings and we lift and encourage people up in their callings. We're humble and gentle and we're patient with each other. We even <laughs> make allowances for others' faults. We'll make every effort to be united in spirit, binding ourselves with peace. We'll be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving, using our hands for hard work. We're going to give generously. Everywhere we go, we're going to be an encouragement. That is our true identity as God's people. When we speak the truth in love, we grow more and more like Christ. Our temples, our minds, they become like Christ. We take on the mind of Christ. We're going to become more healthy. Our identity is going to be secure. And the whole body will be healthy and growing. So we have to rid the old mindsets. In order to do this, we have to do what Ezra did. Abide. Sit with God. It's in this secret place of sitting with God that our minds are renewed. So I know the question is, how am I going to do this? Because I'm asking myself the same questions. <laughs> what does it look like to put on the mind of Christ? I'm going to suggest modeling what Ezra did. It's surrender. It's lamenting for the sins of the nation. I mean, these sins weren't even his own. He sat with God and he abided in him. He didn't justify the sin, but acknowledged and repented for it. He came under God's law and he prayed for himself, the people, and the future of the people. Abiding is sitting with God and listening to God. Surrendering our minds and our actions, he changes our perspectives. Our identity comes from abiding. God is calling us to sit and listen. This has been my call for a month, and I laugh because I'm going to tell you, I am really not very good at this. I had this realization as I was at a stoplight. I pulled out my phone, and I'm like looking at my emails. I'm like, what am I doing? I can't even sit at a stoplight and sit here. Let me, let me tell you about some of the things I found while sitting with God. I find myself hungry. I see all the things I need to do around the house. All of a sudden, my kids need me more than ever. I really fight thoughts of not producing anything. My mind is wandering all the time. I find I'm not comfortable. I find I'm hot. I find I'm cold. I get restless. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But what I'm finding is the more I do this, the more I'm sitting with God, the better I'm getting at it. The more comfortable it's becoming. In fact, it's becoming my favorite time of day. I'm finding that I'm a better wife and mom and employee and friend. My perspective is changing. I become softer, more open, secure, and confident in my call. I can see differently. Okay, Nicole, so how is that practically looking for you? If you knew me 
<laughs> you'd be shocked that I'm even talking about this this morning because I have an entrepreneurial spirit. It's who I am. I'm in school full-time, I have three kids, I work a full-time job, and I do Airbnb. I don't say that to make you feel bad. I just say that because it's my sin. My mom's laughing at me right now because she knows. <laughs> but about this time, every week, there's like a little ping on my phone that has shown me how much time averaged through the week that I'm spending on my phone each day. And I'll be very, it was like three and a half hours a day. And I, I was like, I wanted to vomit. I'm like, I may not have time there, but oh my goodness, I have time there. And I think what God's saying is, where is the time that you have that needs to be shifted? So for me, this is my call. I'm not saying it's everyone's. It was to get rid of all social media because I was just scrolling for hours, apparently, and I was taking in everyone else's perspectives instead of sitting with God and listening to his. So I don't know what it is for you, and I don't want to prescribe that. And, I, and the last thing I want it to become is legalistic because that would be the opposite work of what we're trying to do. But I do have some tips. Here they are. Give yourself grace because it's really hard work. Be open to hearing God. One of the things I do um, is that my husband and I have had made this pact that I get an hour and he gets an hour, and whatever happens within that hour, that's on him, not me. And I don't have to feel guilty about whatever happens. That's a whole other story of what's happened in those hours. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> I've been journaling everything that's in my mind, which, if you know me, I am not a journal, journaler. Journal? I don't know. I don't journal. And I've been putting all these things down on paper, like everything that's, like, happening, even if it's, my, like, my to-do list. I just write it all, write it all, write it all. And then I ask and invite God into it. And I say, God, give me your perspective. Change my mind. I give you my emotions and my thoughts. I invite you into this. And then I re-listen, and I'm rewriting what I hear. And it's amazing to look at the two. Remember, it's a skill, and it takes practice. I'm finding that the place really matters. So be open to new spaces. Maybe even a space where you really find that you're tempted the most. What if we transformed that into being our abiding place? If you have kids, make a commitment that this is the best thing you can do for everyone. Whatever you do, don't stop. Don't feel guilty and keep trying. Because I think sitting with God is our lifeline. Ezra modeled it. And it's out of his abiding that came spiritual revival for the entire nation. One man, one person abiding with God turned an entire nation to repent and realign themselves with God. One person's abiding with God helped the entire nation have a new perspective. I'm going to invite Daniel and the band to come up. And as they do, I want to say that abiding is a daily invitation for us all. But we want to offer that space to do it corporately as well.
Because in Ezra it says, everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around Ezra. See, it's good to gather, to worship, to pray, to remind each other who we are, what God has done and how he's been faithful to us. So we're planning to do that. You heard that on August 8th at 6.30. We would like for you to join us as we abide in God, seek our identity and future as a church together. I'm going to do something right now that's super countercultural. <laughs> and I'm going to invite God to come and speak to us and have a place of silence for us all. So I'm going to pray. We're going to do this for a little bit. And then Daniel is going to interrupt us, and then we'll sing and worship God. Lord, thank you how you speak to us. Thank you for the promise that you renew our minds. Lord, thank you that we have this lifeline to hear from you. God, teach us how to do this. Be with us. And Lord, right now I just submit and surrender all of our thoughts and our worries, our anxieties, whatever it is, Lord, to lay it at your feet and invite you to change our minds, our perspectives, our emotions. Lord, speak to your people within this gift of silence.